tonight we're in the Gospel of Luke. And if we're in the Gospel of Luke, we're focusing, of course, on Jesus' humanity versus Matthew, where we're focusing on Jesus' kingship, king over all, and Mark, where we see him as servant under all. But remember, with each of them, there's a focal point, too. Uh, a place that sort of, if you will, the cameraman keeps sort of zooming into, focusing in on. For Matthew, do you remember what that is? He was the king, but where was the, what was the one place we kept going back to? The hill. The hill, excellent, the hill. Uh, there was always this sort of, in whether that's the center on the mount, or whether that's Jesus being transfigured, or whether that's Jesus being on the Mount of Olives when he teaches the end time sermon, or Jesus first dying on the hill of Golgotha, or then going back to the hill uh, at the end that he had ordained for them. We, we sort of see the king of the hill in that sense there. Okay, and then in Mark, we see him as a servant of, of all, or servant under all. Uh, what's the one thing that kind of keeps going back to there? Excellent, the multitudes. And more specifically in regards to that, the multitudes, their effect. They're thronging him and giving Jesus no chance to eat or no chance to do all these things. So his family comes to rescue him, saying he's gone mad, because he's constantly surrounded and the need is so vast and it's, it's clear and obvious there. And so we have this servant under all, serving the multitudes. And do you remember what sort of the key word was that we see often uh, in the Gospel of Mark? Is in regards to time. Immediately. Excellent. Immediately. There's always this aspect of there's an immediate need, there's an immediate response, there's a need. Healing is sort of this thing. We see this. We also see, by the way, again, an attention towards Aramaic words, uh, and of course they're always defined. Can anyone remember any of those references at all? I mean, that would be kind of amazing because we're talking Aramaic now. Excellent. Excellent. So, yeah, and even Abba, what's that? Bonergis, excellent, Bonergis, the sons of thunder. And so we have that as well then. Now as we go to Luke, we see this human kind of Jesus, and of course our focal point now is, and hear me on this because I need to be clear, it is on the table. And there's going to be a very big difference, and this is really good to kind of prep you for John as well in this, between a feast and the feast. Because in in um, Luke, well, we're focusing on Jesus' humanity, obviously eating is very important. Uh, it certainly is for us, isn't it? That's uh, why so they call it Calorie Chapel here. The, and so, and there will be these, I mean, the references to food, you know, over 50% of the things that take place in one way or another sort of involve food. But, it is a feast, like, you know, if, for instance, it'll be Zacchaeus throwing a feast, or Levi throwing a feast, Levi throwing a feast, versus when we get to the Gospel of John, when we see God coming to his house, the focal point, by the way, is going to be the feast. And that, of course, speaks of, for instance, the Jewish feast of Passover, of Pentecost. Well, really, not really attended to. At Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication, those things. So that's why I want to make sure we put that clarity in now. When you're, for instance, looking, hint, nudge, wink, at different verses in Scripture, you'll see, when you see the word feast, look at ah versus the. If it's the feast, we're talking about the Jewish feast. Uh, that will be a really big issue in the Gospel of John. So does that sort of make sense? So there's a lot of reference, and we see that, a lot of reference in regards to uh, Jesus eating or food aspects. And of course, again, not all of them are exclusive, but really 52% of the wordage, in essence, is, is original material. 32% of it, in essence, is by sort of subject matter, is original or unique material in the Gospel of Luke. So that's really huge. And again... Uh, in this book, there were other things that we sort of see attended to. For instance, the lowly. 
Luke really has this tendency to sort of focus in on people really in need. In essence, the better way to say it maybe is the underdog. And we sort of see that. Uh, and we'll see that, especially in the first couple of chapters, for instance, there's a lot of focus on that. Uh, so there is that aspect. Um, as a human, and of course, in, our, in Mark, we learn how to be a servant. You know, in Matthew, we learn about the king we serve under. But in Luke, we just learn how to be a Christian. We learn how to be a human being seeking to please God. And there's a beautiful aspect to that. And with that in mind, there's to focus on two specific aspects uh, that we need, in essence, to really walk in a way, and sort of to walk as a Christian would walk. Do you remember what either of those are? There's two things that he really emphasizes in this particular gospel. Good. Uh, prayer, excellent. One of them is prayer. There's a constant, there's a, a frequent, very periodic attention towards Jesus going to pray. And do you remember what the other one is then? The Holy Spirit. Excellent, Marcia. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Now, it is important to recognize that we see the reliance on the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Luke. But what we're going to see is the teaching on the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. So it isn't like, oh, Holy Spirit, it must be Luke. Because though, certainly the Holy Spirit is, is emphasized, but think of it this way. Jesus, in essence, would be saying, in essence, if we pray, the Father will give us the Holy Spirit. If we seek in Jesus, filled with the Spirit, Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, is being led. We see that in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of John, what we're going to see, and I'm giving you this in contrast so we can kind of get that clear from the beginning, well, see, for instance, Jesus says, if you come to me and you believe in me, I will give you the Holy Spirit. You know, and so you see a very big difference between the two. And so when Jesus, you know, in John is going to go, let me tell you about the Holy Spirit. He calls him the Spirit two or three different times in John 14 through 16. He calls him uh, the, uh, another helper or the helper. Those are, in essence, relatively unique to the Gospel of John. He's teaching us who this Holy Spirit is. But in Luke, it's more of the narrative of Jesus' reliance on the Holy Spirit as a human being, and of course, uh, also how we ourselves as human beings can also have that same experience. There's the idea versus Jesus being God and initiating Him. Okay, so it sort of makes sense. Okay, because obviously we have a lot to kind of cover in this, and I don't want to do it really fast, but it would be easy to do, you know. So. Uh, you have your papers there, so you can kind of be ready. I recognize with all the information I'm giving, at least having something you can fill in helps at least, so that you can kind of help keep track on it. Now, we break things up into three categories by all four Gospels. Do you remember what those three categories are in regards to Jesus' adult ministry? Galilee. Excellent. The first is his Galilee region, the time where he spends teaching in Galilee, or ministering in Galilee. And then what else? Excellent. The check down to Jerusalem, the second portion. And then the third? The last week. Excellent. The last week of Jesus' ministry. Well, we call it the last week, of course, he's still ministering. But yeah, you're right. And so, and of course, with each one of them, there's an emphasis. Matthew and Mark both have really spent over, in essence, nearly or at or above 40 or 50 percent, uh, 48 and 52 percent of their gospel is dedicated to that Galilee ministry. Luke, on the other hand, of course, his emphasis is going to be on that walk down from 952 through the middle of 19 is going to be, you know, more than half of it is going to be basically that walk down. And then, ultimately, John, on the other hand, uh, when we push John, it's going to be more topical. It's almost like you can't even get <coughs> kind of a blow-by-blow blow in it. And to try to get a blow-by-blow, blow, it actually starts adding events, and we'll talk about that next week, uh, where certain events are, for instance, put at the beginning of something versus it might actually, chronologically, happen at the end. But we'll talk about why that's so important topically. Now, in the Gospel of Ruth, 
the book of Ruth, although it's certainly great, great news. There's the necessity of something that God actually brought up in the book of Deuteronomy, which is called a kinsman redeemer. Somebody that had to be from your own family, that if you were in a place of needing redeeming, you then would be able to have that redemption by somebody who had to be part of you, part of your family. And the reason I say that is, that becomes emphasis in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus becoming man, or God becoming man, is to become our kinsman redeemer. There's our point in this. So, there is one other section that two of the four Gospels will spend time on that the other two do not. And that is Jesus' childhood, or really, really his infancy. Of the four Gospels, which two Gospels tell us, in essence, relatively, the Christmas story? Excellent. Matthew and Luke. Matthew from the emphasis of the king being born, and Luke from the emphasis of a human. A human has to be born. He's not hatched. You know? And so that becomes, and, and more than any other emphasis, it's going to be here in the Gospel of Luke. Now, for, for what it's worth, so really we have a lot of information that's unique. Matter of fact, primarily the first two chapters of Luke are just unique material. It is important to note if we actually go to the actual birth story of Jesus, it's only in the Gospel of Luke. Because what you really have is the peripheral information before, but Joseph not leaving Mary, and then the wise men showing up, while Jesus, we read, they came to the house. So he's certainly not in a manger anymore. And so what that told us is that birth situation only takes place really in Luke. And so a lot of this information, we're going to get that are really in those first couple of years. The only time when we get something beyond Jesus' toddlerhood is going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So, I mean, there's so much of that information you'll be able to pull off. So, Let's hop from the table now and, and meet Jesus, the man, the kinsman, redeemer of the underdogs. Uh, first couple chapters, again, the early years, basically this whole section is unique. We do have in the prologue, by the way, that this is the one gospel we have a clearly defined recipient. His name is Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus, by the way, theo, mean, like theology, means God. Philos, like philo, means friend. So his name means God's friend. So for that purpose, I'd say he wrote it to me. Uh, he also tells them that he wanted to write him an orderly account. We might say the account is linear. Uh, now, Theophilus, by the way, the word Theo is a, is a prefix, and Phileco are Greek words, and more than likely, if, the, if Theophilus isn't Greek, he's certainly influenced greatly by the Greeks. And the way we think as Greeks, we're all trained in the Greek world. I mean, from our whole Western world is based on Greek thinking. It's linear. It's past, present, future. That's all Greek thinking. And the reason I say that is, is that Luke is the only gospel writer that makes clear that he's going to write it linear. Neither of the other three um, gospel writers ever said, okay, expect this to be play-by-play. Play. This is how it happens in succinct order from one thing to the next. But Luke does say that. And he actually even tells us why. He actually gives us a very clear reason why when he says that you may know with the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. So he's like, the reason he's writing this, Luke is writing this to a guy for the purpose of making sure that that guy would be confident in what he's trusted in. So in essence, we might say this was actually written to a believer, if you think about it. It's also important to note, by the way, for what it's worth, Colossians 4 does tell us that Luke is a Gentile. It doesn't really matter that much, except for those people out there that are really trying to prove to everyone that everything was written in Hebrew, so they can kind of get their own kind of way of doing things. So everyone has to wear a kippah. Uh, and Luke clearly, according to Colossians 4, was not. Okay, 
So, uh, the emphasis, by the way, in chapter 1, we're going to see a lot of this work of the Holy Spirit. Very different, by the way. I mean, when we start mentioning the Holy Spirit in the church at large, of course, we're going to expect hand raised and laps going on and tongues being spoken and so forth. So there's so much being done here uh, in that is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and if we look at it carefully, it would be just so encouraged. Well, notice, we meet the underdog priest. His name is Zacharias. Uh, he's unique to Luke, by the way. We don't, the guy we would know existed if it wasn't for the Gospel of Luke. You know, we know him as the father of John the Baptist. Um, the seated father of John, by the way, is very unlikely candidate because he's elderly, and even more so because his wife is elderly, which in essence means, really, that she's gone through menopause. That's kind of the point of it. She's not ovulating. Forgive me for being so bold. Uh, John Baptist, we do read, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is introduced, and we've only gotten to our first candidate in this book. In verse 15 of chapter 1, it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. It says he will, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh. That he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result of him being filled with the Holy Spirit is that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. This is what I would expect from somebody filled with the Holy Spirit, to turn many people to, to the Lord their God. I think that's a great thing. And for that, I would say, God, fill me. Let me read about an angel. Uh, we know him as Gabriel. For what it's worth, Gabriel is only mentioned in two books of the Bible. The angel Gabriel is only mentioned in two books of the Bible. One of them is the Gospel of Luke. Daniel, or anyone else, can you tell me what the other book that Gabriel is mentioned in? No. Interestingly enough, but that would be a good guess. I want to warn you, I've already said it. Could you tell me, Daniel? Oh, Daniel. Yes, the book of Daniel. <laughs> Daniel is the other book from which Gabriel's mentioned. The same angel has a second mission. The first, of course, is to deal with Zechariah. Uh, the second is to deal with Mary. It's important to recognize again in the Gospel of Matthew, the angel speaks, so he's not mentioned by name, he speaks to Joseph. In the Gospel of Luke, he speaks to Mary. Because the emphasis for a king would be through the father, the emphasis through a man would be through the mom. And there's kind of the idea of that. So, he speaks to the woman, and their their responses are very different, and it's important to note this, because it seems like one's judgment is a lot harsher than the other. For, uh... Okay. When he speaks to Zechariah, and it, I do find this interesting, by the way, do you remember what Zechariah is doing when Angel, when Gabriel speaks to him? Yes, he's serving in the temple. Do you remember in what manner he's serving in the temple? Yes, and when a person offers incense, what are they doing while the incense is burning? They are praying. Exactly, they are praying. And again, Luke is already introducing us to that prayer thing. You see how that's starting to happen. He's praying, but while he's praying, the people... Now, we read, the conversation doesn't seem like a very long conversation, does it? And yet the people outside are wondering what's taking him so long. Does that tell you something? So the guy's in there for a time of prayer, but he's having a conversation we read in two minutes. And they're like, oh, he's been in there for a while. How long did, how long did these guys normally pray? 
Well, how long do we normally pray? But when he says, your wife's going to get pregnant, she's going to bear forth this child who's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and you'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He says, how will I know this? That's a very different response. When the angel Gabriel goes to Mary, she says, how can this happen? Very different things. How can this happen? Because she says, if I just put a plainly on the virgin, there's no baby happening here. And I don't see, scientifically, this is, how is this going to happen? Because clearly this is against science. Him, on the other hand, he's like, how will I know this says? Well, what sign will you give me to prove this is going to happen? There's very different responses. So when the angel responds to Zechariah, he says, well, I'll tell you what, you want a sign? How about this one? You're not going to be able to talk because your mouth's getting in the way here. So you're not going to be able to talk until this boy is born. So there's a punishment in his lack of faith. But on her case, there's no lack of faith. She's just like, I don't even understand. Look at I know. I know enough to know that there's no baby happening unless something really crazy happened here. So he's like, well, don't even worry about it. So it's important to recognize that for what it's worth. So the second time that we read about the Holy Spirit being mentioned, it says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. It will come upon. And it says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. And therefore, the Holy One will be born. You will be called the Son of God. As he overshadows, she will then carry Jesus. She will have the privilege of carrying Jesus. So then Mary goes to visit her aunt, who's clearly, I mean, I don't know how that works out as far as whatever relative is. It doesn't actually say, um, because she seems seemingly quite old and she's seemingly quite young. Uh, and so there's, I don't know how many generations are in between them. But she goes to visit her. And I do love this part, you guys. And the reason is, is that Mary has been pregnant with a great promise. She's been given a promise of God. But for the sake of everybody else, it's going to be shame. Because they're just not going to understand. And I wouldn't expect them to. I mean, Shantae came home and said she was pregnant. And she said God did it. It still would be, as pure as our daughter is, it still would be, God would have to speak to us to confirm that. You know, and just because that just doesn't, it just doesn't happen like that often. Well, what I love is, is that you've been impregnated with a promise too. The moment you said yes to Jesus, God placed his Holy Spirit inside of you. And the rest of the world is not going to understand that. It's going to be a point of mockery, and people are going to point and laugh, and, they're going to, and you're, going to be, you're going to experience shame for it. And it's the only place you have, the only experience you have with that promise inside of you, is with the world outside of you, you're going to want to hide it. But if you go and you visit your Elizabeth, someone more pregnant with the promise than you are, well, then all of a sudden everything changes. Because at a point like that, it's great encouragement because you realize you're not the only one who has this promise. Well, with that in mind, she visits Elizabeth, and as she arrives, the Holy Spirit is at work again. Uh, this time what we read is Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the, the, the babe leapt in a room, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The third time the Holy Spirit is mentioned, she is filled with joy, and she with joy then blesses Jesus, the gift and blesses the one who bears that gift. That's what we see so far in the Holy Spirit network. We've seen turning people, probably ready, turning people to the Lord their God. We see them carrying the promise, and then, and then as well, blessing Jesus and blessing those who bear Him. Mary responds, by the way, stating the glory of God for the underdog. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, the Spirit, 
My spirit is rejoicing in God, my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he was mighty and done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now, that's the Zacharias and John the Baptist. Zacharias been here since his debate with Gabriel. Well, that means the end. And so, in 162, the child is born, and they say, well, what's the baby going to be named? And Elizabeth says, John. And they're like, John? Who would name their boy John? There's no John in your family. You should name him Daniel. Uh, and so they made signs to the father would be called, and the father says, yes, for a writing tablet, which you're probably familiar with, sort of a small layer of clay on something like slate below it. And, he, and, and, said, and he wrote, his name is John. And from that point it said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the result was that he blessed the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So from the result then, Zechariah prophesied, and then he blesses, declaring that God has not only visited his people, but he's also redeemed them. And again, I remind you, Jesus is coming as the kings and the redeemer. The redeeming is a very important point. John's mission is given a simple statement remind you that the prophesier in this case is dad. Don't forget that. Zacharias is prophesying about his own son. And he says, you child will be called prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Or we might say that we don't often use the word remission, the word is forgiveness. And so he says, you know what a prophet's doing here? He will bring the knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's saying. And I remind you, the first two chapters are the girthiest. So if it seems like we're moving slow, that's because it's the most material. Salvation to his people by the, by the forgiveness of sins. Luke, by the way, another thing that would be important to note, and by the way, you, you're aware that what I'm doing is this is also preparing you, for instance, to pick out verses when you're doing that. Luke, because he's doing an orderly account, which, in, which means, by the way, he wants to put things in proper time stamps, he's going to give us the most political details, most time-oriented details. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, It came to pass, after those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. Now, who cares if Quirinius was governing Syria? Luke does, because that gives us a time stamp. So when you start reading specific political details, that's because Luke wants to make sure... I mean, we would say, in the summer of 85, this is what took place. Well, some of you, you'd be like, I was being born. Or, or my parents were considering me ever being born. You know. but, but for us, we use, it as, we use dates. But understand, that dating process that we use today, by the way, wouldn't actually be developed for, for over a century. So, I mean, it isn't like we could use that then. So they have to take things that they know are specific landmarks, and those are political landmarks. Because what other landmarks could you use? Well, the earthquake. Well, anyway. So they want to be registered. That means we have to go back to our place. Because what happens this way is that, I remind you, after Herod the, the great death, who ruled over all of we know as Israel and Syria today, uh, all of the sons that were left were runs and kind of, they were dolts. You know, they're kind of deaf. So they had to break it up into four different groups. Well, now everything's a little bit more complicated. 
Because, well, who pays what taxes? I mean, before that, this giant region, it didn't matter where you came from, because all the taxes were going, in essence, to the same purse, because Herod the Great was using it. Now, all of a sudden, you have to break it up into four groups. Well, who's in what group? So what they did is they would have everyone go back to their original land of birth, because I remind you that the Israel still claimed their territories, and then ultimately they would say, well, even if I lent you my property or sold it during the year of Jubilee, I'd get it back. So they were like, well, let's go back to tribal allotments, and you go back to where you properly belong so we could properly tax you for all of the governors now that are overseeing the area. So that's kind of what's happening here. So while all that's happening, it says the days were completed for her to be delivered. I love that term. I think you would have pointed out to me. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Do you realize almost every nativity story that takes place over Christmas in every school is based on one verse in Scripture? Are you aware of that? I mean, the whole, well, we went to this place, we went to that place, and there was no room in this inn, and there was no room in this inn. All it just says is, she took a baby, she was time to have, time to have the baby, so she had the baby, and then she had the baby, it says that she swaddled him, which, by the way, is what parents that take care of their children do in, the, in those days. They actually cover them in olive oil and salt, and then they wrap them in, uh, they wrap them tight in linen cloth, and then put them in for, for 30 minutes and then flip them over till they're golden brown. Uh, and so, <laughs> that's, that's why they have that really cool color to them in the Mediterranean. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, and so, but I mean, so, and of course the idea is, is that it strengthens the skin, but it also fights, I mean, salt is a, um, thank you, it's an antiseptic. So, uh, and so that would be, so you have a very well taken care of baby. Now, what would that be like? In America, it would be like, they wouldn't bought Carter's clothes, if that makes sense. They're sort of upscale things, and then they put them in the most heinous and unhygienic places of feeding troughs. You're probably aware of this, but most feeding troughs for large animals are not inside buildings. They're not even in barns. Maybe you think about it, if you've ever been to Israel, you know, you put a feeding trough out in the open so that the animals can get it from both sides. And face it, I mean, you know what happens after animals eat? Do you know what happens pretty much next? <laughs> I mean, that there's a process. There's in with the new, out with the old. Do you really want that to happen in your barn? And so on and so forth. And I'm not trying to destroy your nativity thing. But it's like, you kind of get the idea. It's even weirder to think she's giving birth out in the open. And then, you know, and then she's putting this baby out in the open, you know, for the thousandth time or so, uh, you know, for people to find. For what it's worth. So, you know, anyway. So there's no room in the end, so the, all the TV scenes are based on this. And now we meet our next underdogs. God is going to call the underdogs the shepherds. Who, by the way, we're, we don't have anything. I mean, guys, help me out. What would that be like in, in London um, to have a group of people that really don't have a home and they kind of go in from one place and head out the other? Kind of the bohemian thing. You probably would find them meeting on a Wednesday or a Tuesday at Kevin Guitars, you know, they all kind of have this sort of flowing things, and you watch it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You know, there's a kind of, the reason I say that is when a guy like that tells you a story, you just don't assume it's, it's gospel facts. You know, for all of the people for God to incorporate into this, shepherds were nomads, because you can't just stay in one place, because what happens once you sheep at all the grass? Well, then you got to go somewhere else. So you were always going and looking. To this day... Bedouins still live in Israel. They are their own class of people. They are actually legally allowed to be able to run as they do. And as they do, they're allowed four wives. 
I actually don't envy them for that. That's for mother-in-law. I have a great mother-in-law. What are the odds of getting two of us? Or four of us? And then all those birthdays and anniversaries and all these things. Well, uh, uh, they, they, don't have, they can't stay in one place alone. And so, with that in mind, they're kind of traveling through. And these are the people that God chooses as the underdogs to be their spokespeople. I think it's amazing. And of course, they're going to tell them, you know, listen, this is, uh, they're born to you to say, the angels show up, this is their big gig, and they're showing up for these guys. So there you are. We've been rehearsing for, for months for our big gig at the O2, and God says, well, it's really not at the O2 arena. It's in front of an O2 store uh, somewhere in Camden, and your audience is going to be a handful of guys selling the big issue. Very different from thinking we're playing at the O2. And they do. And it says, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And again, a kinsman redeemer has to be our Savior. This will be the sign to you. Now, you're aware, a sign's a weird thing, right? I mean, a sign is something, there's a message that is elevated. Let's face it. A sign without a message is a wall. Until you put, a word, until you put words on it, it's just a wall. And then once you put words on it, it becomes a sign. And the reason I say that is, this is the sign. This is the weird thing. You're going to find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Nothing weird about that. But he's in the dog bowl. Now it's weird. And there's kind of the idea. Now, what could we possibly use? It would be like this. You'll find a babe in the nicest of clothes in that public toilet right where the Camden Town Station is. You'll be like, well... That would be weird. Well, that's the idea. So, shepherds go, they find him. Jesus is amazing, just as, as they expected. And like all firstborn males, by the way, this is all exclusive to the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has to be circumcised. He's a Jewish boy. But he's not only... He's like, you, you did that like you have memories. <laughs> he's like, oh, uh, this is done. Is this a recent... And I said, why am I even asking? I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. I just assume it happened and that's good enough. Forgive me. There are two things that are really important. Because Jesus is um, a boy, he has to be circumcised, he's a Jewish boy, because he's a firstborn, they also have to do a sacrifice for him as a redemption for the firstborn. And those two things are really important. The sacrifices, by the way, it's important that they do. Jesus is is circumcised. Luke's going to make that clear because this is what humans do. These humans, uh, and they do it on the eighth day, which, by the way, isn't scientifically is a very wise move. First of all, we don't. Most of us don't have memories of that. Uh, but also, it's the day when your blood is thickest. That's a night you heal quicker. But also, um, that's when you name your child traditionally, and that's what they say. And they named him Jesus, Yahushua, which means God our Savior. Beautiful for what that's worth. But it's important. That means you had eight days with your son, or seven days with your child before you actually named him. And I wonder what we would have named our children had we had eight days before we gave them names. That probably would have been the same. But you can understand why they name them things like Snorter, Nachash, you know, or Serpent Head. Probably what they look like. <laughs> anyway. But the fact is, that the sacrifice, for what it's worth, comes from Exodus 13, Exodus 34, and Leviticus 12. And the reason I say that is God says, for your firstborn... You kill your cow. Well, you kill your ox. Which, by the way, would be the same as being a farmer and killing your tractor. 
But if you can't afford that, then you kill one of your sheep. So, now you're selling cars and you're getting rid of a car. Well, but if you can't afford that and you, have, and you really are really poor, then you sacrifice two turtle doves. Turtle doves, by the way, are, were supposed to be given to you at the gate if you couldn't afford anything. The idea is so that nobody would be sacrificeless. Now, the fact that Luke makes special note that Mary and Joseph offered two turtle doves tells us two things. First of all, it told us they were poor, and that tells us that the wise men haven't shown up yet. Because if the wise men had shown up, they could afford a cow because they would have received gold. It was part and parcel of what the wise men gave. Because they hadn't gotten there yet, Mary and Joseph have to offer a poor man's offering. That's just kind of a note, side note in that. So, and again, we're moving. Now, with that, we start to see as Jesus is presented in the temple, uh, there'll be two presentations, you as a boy, uh, when you're being circumcised, and then the name and that celebration that comes with that, the redemption sacrifice, the second, of course, when you're 13, 12, 13 for Bar Mitzvah. Uh, and we see the Holy Spirit at work again. We, see, we meet two characters unique to the Gospel of Luke, Simeon and Anna. Uh, we do read some interesting things about these two characters. Uh, the man who's Simeon, by the way, uh, they're both underdogs. Simeon is a man who was just and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now we see another time where the Holy Spirit's mentioned. And I remind you, we're only in, you know, we're only in chapter 2. He had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So we see the Holy Spirit again upon Simeon, leading a man to wait for God's salvation or consolation. And leading a man to the temple, where he would see the Lord's Christ. So it says he came into the temple, and when his parents brought the child Jesus to do according to the custom of the law, he took him up and blessed him. Now you're letting your servants part in peace. He's like, now I can die. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. That's what he says, for which you prepare for the face of the people. So Simeon sees the Lord's salvation, and then Anna comes. So there was one who was Anna, a prophetess, who, by the way, you're probably aware, is in, fin- or in uh, Canary Islands right now, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. Does anyone know what in the world that means? I mean, I'm not trying to be weird. There's a certain age, basically. Think of it this way. There's a certain age where all of a sudden the girl has to start buying products. Uh, to sort of tend to herself for hygiene, and that begins the beginning of her virginity, is sort of the way that works. And from the seven years from that point, she had basically lived with this man. So, in other words, she's, and in those days, by the way, it was about 11, 12, uh, and so that puts a girl at about 18. She got married at 18, 19, was the idea, and she had basically been with the same man, now it tells us here, uh, she's now 84. Uh, told us a bit of something. It was 64 years, 65 years. She had been this man who did not depart from the temple. Uh, now, it says, but serve God with fastings and prayers. Notice the prayers again, the night and day. Coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord who spoke of the things, of all those things, and looked for the redemption. Notice the word. She looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. And she goes and picks up the baby and blesses the baby as well as she loves you. That's sort of the idea. Then we have this quick moment where Jesus now is being presented at 12. Unique again to the Gospel of Luke. Only Luke records anything between toddlerhood and adulthood and only this. And of course this is where 
Jesus is at the feast and the parents leave thinking he's with them, but instead he's left in the temple. And of course, every bully's going to line up in the temple at 12, 13, because that's his time. And in essence, this is the moment, and it's really important. Uh, have you ever heard it said that 12 is sort of the magic number for kids? Like for boys and girls, boys, the first 12 years are the rough years, and then the next 12 are the easy. And then for girls, the first 12 years are supposed to be the easy years, and then the next 12 are the rough years. My first thought is 24. we got to wake up 24 before Teddy Well, and The reason I say that is, is during the time, uh, until this day, by the way, basically they say that the children are mo- belong to mom until 12. And then at 12, boys are handed over to the father to start learning the father's business. That's part of their Vamista now. And the reason I say that is that's exactly what Jesus is doing, if you think about it. He's being handed over from mom, from the upbringing of mom and the stories that mom would tell, to the father's business. Not being a carpenter here, but he would say, don't you know that I should be about my father's business? Because he told both his parents that. That'd be a little rough for being stepdad Joseph, you know, while he's in the temple. So whatever that's worth, it's just sort of to contemplate. So, uh, and now we'll sort of pick it up. Should we take a quick break, or are you guys all, are you guys still with me? Okay, now we start revving the engine. Of course. John the Baptist shows up. John the Baptist shows up. Uh, Jesus, of course, is going to be baptized. And he tells us, listen, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, Philip, tetrarch of Israel, the regions of Trachonitis and the Sinaiis, tetrarch of Abilene, you can see how Luke, again, is giving us all of the political information today. If you're going to read that, you should expect it to be from Luke. And his Caiaphas were high priest. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went on to read in preaching a baptism. So John shows up, as we would expect. We've got all of that background information. And it says then, Jesus, as he was praying, while he was praying, it says that the heavens were opened. And it says, And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, impress me here. I'll let you finish to fill that in. While I prayed, heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. And you are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Now, we know there are three recorded statements made of very similar to this one at Jesus' baptism. Now, if there are three recorded, that means one of the Gospels doesn't record a statement made there. Which Gospel is it that doesn't record a statement made there? John. John. Excellent. Now, that tells us there are two other ones. You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Why? And you know, strangers, I think you guys actually hear that. So, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew. Matthew, excellent. You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased is Mark. Excellent. And you and you? And whom? No, it can't be Mark, because he just said you and him. Where did Luke? And Luke, it says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Nope. I'm glad you cleared that up. Okay. So, as a king, everybody, there he is, there he is. 
as a servant. There you are. There he is. As men, it's all about you, buddy. You are my beloved son, and you are my priest. And then we have the genealogy goes backwards from Jesus through Mary all the way back to Adam, our first man. You can't get more human than chasing him the lineage all the way back to the first guy. Which means, now we talk about chasing our lineage to the other side of the boat. That's really chasing your lineage to the other side of the boat. Like the ark. Anyway. So, Jesus, we get back to the Holy Spirit. Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returns from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Spirit not only fills him, but then also leads him into the wilderness to conquer Satan's temptations. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went throughout all of the surrounding region. And it tells us, this is important to recognize, that tells me that I don't have to be God to, to win in the battle against Satan. I just have to be filled with him. And that's what he's telling us here. Now, are we only on the second part of the page four, so to speak? Okay. Hold on tight. He heads to the Nazareth, he reads in the synagogue. And as he reads in the synagogue, we know that they're going to reject him there. But he reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You can see why that would be in Luke, right? Because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor, Set me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and delivery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So he, the Spirit of the Lord being upon Jesus anoints him to preach, to heal, to proclaim, and to set at liberty the captives and oppressed. For which, of course, they don't like the fact that this is just Jesus, because they're like, don't we know this guy? Don't we know his family? This is a carpenter. You know, in the company's time. So that's, and obviously they want to kill him for it. Chapter 5, Jesus starts to recruit. And as he starts to recruit, of course, this where we have that miraculous catch of fish which humbles Peter, unique to the Gospel of Luke. Of which then Peter says, leave me, I'm a sinful man. And he says, listen to the difference. He says, do not fear, from now on you will catch men. Very different from the others where he says, I'll make you fishes of men. That's your job. But here it's like, this is what you're going to do, you're going to catch men. And then we read that Jesus often was into the wilderness. And guess what he did there? He prayed. Exactly. It happened then as Jesus was teaching the Pharisees and the teachers were sitting by, who had come from every town in, Judea, in Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was there, was present to heal them. And I find it really interesting that there was a power there to heal the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but they wouldn't take it. And one of the things Luke will emphasize is human will. Jesus then will go from that event to calling Matthew. And of course, Matthew gives him a great feast. Well, let me pick the right guy. Tension mounts about Jesus at that time, specifically about things he does on the Sabbath. And the mounting demands upon him, Jesus chooses to delegate. And as he delegates now... That will not happen without preparation. It tells us it came to pass in those days. Jesus went on a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. Jesus would not pick his twelve without spending an all-nighter in prayer first. Could you imagine having an all-nighter in prayer? Do you know that my bachelor party was an all-night worship and prayer night? That was what we did. I remember that. And we did, I'd only done that one time before that with the same group of guys, and that was right before I proposed to them. And we just 
And it, there are certain things when you're picking things, you really want to be really careful about it. Because, you know, you know, I didn't want to pick a Judas. Glad I did. <laughs> As he speaks about the humanity, he does go with, we get this little excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. I really do believe because Matthew could write Roman shorthand and he had the facilities, Matthew, that I believe he was actually listening to the Sermon on the Mount and writing it as he was listening to it. He could write as fast as people could speak. But Luke, on the other hand, he's gathering information, and he only gives us a little excerpt, but he adds this information, and to be honest, this is the most impacting verse of the blessed, of the horrible things that happen to you. And he says, blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you. Because see, what God wants to show us as humans is we hate to be excluded. We'd like to say no to the party, but we'd love to be invited to it, even if we'd never go. Chapter 7, we meet another underdog. The underdog is the widow at Naim, for which Jesus, of course, will raise his son, the only son. And then John the Baptist comes asking whether everyone should be still looking for Jesus, or should it be someone else? Jesus will teach them, blessed if he was not offended, scandalon, made scandalized because of me. And then Jesus speaks about the Pharisees and the lawyers. Well, actually, Luke gives this comment. And he says, you know, remember how the power of God was present to heal them prior? And one of the things we see with humans is that we have a will. He tells us, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And what that tells me is that man can reject the will of God. When someone says, man cannot reject the will of God, I'm like, funny, the Pharisees and the lawyers did. Are they not human? But they had created then a no-win situation for which Jesus was telling that the Son of Man, that John the Baptist came, he neither ate lots of food and nor he drank wine, and they said he was even possessed. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking, and they say, look at this guy, he's a glutton and a, and a wine-bibber, he's a party animal, and a friend of tax collectors. He's like, boy, you can't win. If we just fast all the time, you want to call us demon possessed. But if we eat and drink with you guys, then you say that we're party animals. Well, obviously, you get the idea. Ultimately, Jesus, of course, will meet a sinful woman who will anoint his feet with her tears and then cover him with fragrant oil. And then, by chapter 8, uh, of course, we know that's where uh, Jesus will point out the futility of the limits of his Luke will about his own profession. He speaks of the woman that was ill but couldn't even get well by the doctors. She was just poor. And the only thing they could really bleed her from was her finances. And then that was where Jesus then says to the girl, Talitha Kumi, as, by the way, uh, you know, Deborah so poignantly put earlier. Chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. And it tells us, by the way, that one thing that Luke wants to emphasize is when Moses and Elijah showed up, Jesus was doing something. Guess what Jesus was doing? He was praying. Okay, so as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. Now as he starts, and can you see we're obviously picking things up quite quickly now. Now Jesus starts to walk down. And the emphasis now becomes on saving. It's about the lost and how the lost need to be saved. So as they start to head down, the first thing they do is they're not let through. The Samaritans won't let them through their neighborhood. And at this point, John and James want to just fry them. They want to call fire down from heaven. They're not just the sons of thunder, they want to be the sons of lightning. And Jesus says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
Like, here I am trying to save people, and you want to kill them? How exactly are we on the same team again? Then he offers, and Jesus then, interesting, the next thing he does is he actually enhances his 12 delegates to 70, which is unique to the Gospel of Luke, by the way. Jesus calling out 70 and sending them is unique to the Gospel of Luke. And he gives them instruction. You know, when you go from house to house, just eat what they give you. And don't just run from house to house. When you go to a town, stay in that same house. So you might want to find out. You'll knock on some doors. What are you serving for dinner? Okay, I'm going to stay at this house. (laughs) How are you with tea service? Oh, you're a vegetarian. Okay, thank you. God's blessings be upon you. How are you? Anyway. Sorry. They return, and they're joking about how powerful they are in the spiritual world. And Jesus then brings them back to earth with this. And this is so fun. Remember, his focus is on saving the lost. And he says, you know, don't rejoice that spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You know what should really jones you? That you are saved. Because if we're really honest about it, we should be floored at every song of that. Some of us, it's a little bit more obvious than others because our lives are a lot more colorful. Nothing to brag about, only to be ashamed of. But I look and I think, wow, you, you saved me. And you, I, I'm still jumping. Well, obviously, Jesus is... And this is what happens in a church that starts to experience sports of spiritual power. As you start seeing things like this, and they just want to jump on that check out. And it's like, no, nah, don't mess with me because I'm a man of God, man. I tell you, I'm going to bring those demons in here. I'll slay those demons, man. I'll slay those demons. I'm a demon slayer, man. That's what they call me. DS, man. DS, Tony. Not no, no more PT, man. DS, demon slayer. You know, and all of this is happening, right? Jesus is like, stop, stop. Could you imagine what it was like for Peter, James, and John? James and John are like, bring in on the thunder! Bring on the thunder! You know, and Jesus is like, stop! You need to be in heaven. You should realize that's so much cooler than the fact that a demon fled because I gave you power and to chase it out of someone. Because if you forget about that, you're actually chasing a demon out of someone, you better let them know why. Because he wonders what happens if, if that, that demon comes back and finds the house swept clean, but it's vacant. Jesus needs to move in. Now, as he's on his way down, he gets quizzed by a bunch of people, you know, lawyers, about what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. A man seeking to justify himself, asks who his neighbor is, because he says, well, you know, if really that's the case, you know, you, you need to love your neighbors yourself. And he says, well, who does that have to be? And Jesus then gives us the story of the Good Samaritan. Talk about underdogs. Everybody in that crowd would have hated him. And I remind you, their last experience with Samaritans was that they didn't let him to the neighborhood and James and John wanted to fry him. So you can imagine, he probably wasn't very popular. You know, it would be like if this weird referendum takes place up north, it would be like the good Scott. You know, definitely. Well, and then Jesus enters a certain village and has dinner with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, which is interesting because we know that their house by the way, is in Bethany, right on the Mount of Olives. It appears as if she's making dinner somewhere else. And of course, Martha starts freaking out because Mary's at Jesus' feet while Martha's trying to make dinner. And this is one of the, this has been, by the way, in the season, of course, of my unhealth as a recent, this has been the verse that God's been keep, keep hammering me with. The word required, or as we see here, the word needed. 
Jesus answered, he said, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled by so many things. But only one thing is needed, or only one thing is required. And Mary's chosen that good part. Uh, it will not be taken from us. Perhaps if you realize of all the things you're doing, only one thing is actually required. Chapter 11, by the way. I love this. It came to pass Jesus was praying. And as Jesus was praying, they waited till he stopped. But did you notice they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because John taught his disciples. Notice it doesn't say, teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray. And imagine watching someone. Could you imagine watching anyone and going, can you show me how to have prayer? How to have a life of prayer like you? Because clearly it was so evident in Jesus' life. It wasn't a program or a form. It's like, don't just give me some words. Although Jesus will give them an essence template. They just saw it and gone, I just want that, I want that. He gives them a parable about prayer at the end of it. And then after that, he actually talks about asking the Father for needs. In the parable of prayer, a friend is at home in bed, and you have, a, you have a guest that's come and visit, and you need bread. There's that food thing again. You knock on your friend's door, and he doesn't want to get up. If you keep knocking, even though he doesn't want to get up, sooner or later, he's going to realize he isn't sleeping until he answers the door. And, and he goes, the idea of that is be persistent in your prayers. And then he says, okay, if you ask your father for an egg, is he really going to give you a scorpion? What kind of dad does that? What's interesting, though, is of all the things he says, he says, if you ask your father for bread, will he give you a stone? And the only reason I say that is, that was the beginning of Jesus' temptations, don't forget. And I wonder how many times in those 40 days Jesus asked the father, can I have bread, dad? And I'm seeing stones, right? And after all of that, you know, it's, he says, you know, it's like, look, if you ask the Father for a good glass of water, is he going to give you coffee? <laughs> Sorry. This is look at this. You, as your father's being evil, but know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, we're aware in the other Gospels, what does he say instead of the Holy Spirit? Good gifts. But here he defines what those good gifts are here. Now there are those on the other side, they oppose him by their tradition. Jesus is sequestered to settle a debt between brothers and instead teaches them on the weakness of greed in, in 12. In 13, by the way, there are these guys that died and Jesus tries to say guys that died miserable deaths doesn't mean that it was because they were more evil than another person. We all deserve to die miserable deaths. And there, you know, there's a woman with a ceremony for 18 years. There's a parable of a fig tree. They're all exclusive. A man of drops, he's killed in 14. And then he tells us that we should take the lowest place. And that, of course, is also in chapter 14. And the idea of it is, he says, hey, when you're invited to a wedding feast, and notice, not the, but a wedding feast, don't sit down in the best place. Now, who do you think should have the best place at a wedding feast? I would imagine the bride and groom. It would be a weird place to sit, wouldn't it? <laughs> imagine. Yeah. And then the guy's like, ah, uh, so would you like to cut the cake for us? You know? 
And he goes, but then someone more honorable is going to tell me, saying, why don't you just, well, the only seeds left, just take a seed at the end, and then you have to do that in front of them. And by the way, that's important, because in the Gospel of John, it seems like the one guy who really got this was Peter, because when Jesus is telling them one would betray him, at the Roman Torah Jesus would be on this end of the staple, that says one from across the table, motions to, G- to John, who's in Jesus' bosom, and says, hey, ask him who it is. Which sounds to me like Peter took the lowest place, and then Jesus never invited him up. Which is good for Peter. So, you know, and so now when he, was sit- when he sat at the table with him, uh, those who heard these things, and they said, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is like, well, he tells them a parable. In the parable, of course, is the man who offers a great feast. He invites people, and no one wants to come, so he winds up bringing the less invited, the uninvited, after a myriad of excuses. And then he says, none of these men who are invited will actually even taste of my supper. But in chapter 15, on the other hand, tax collectors and sinners draw near to him. The Pharisees and scribes complain, and he says, this man eats with sinners. He receives sinners, and he eats with them. And with that, then, Jesus gives three amazing parables. Three of our favorites, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. One lost from a hundred, one lost from ten, and then one lost from two. And in all three cases, a fervent search party is in essence gathered, sequestered. And it says in them, verse 6, when he comes, he calls his friends together. This is finding the lost sheep. He calls his neighbors and his friends together, and he says to them, rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. For I say to you, likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Then comes the girl. She has the ten coins. More than likely, her bride price. A bad thing to lose. A coin falls off of that. That's not so good. And so she goes and she sweeps the house clean to find it. And when she found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together. Sounds familiar. And she says, Rejoice for me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Peace, not the peace. Maybe that's it. Hey, I found a peace while I was looking. It's good too, still, which I lost. Likewise, I say, there is presence, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, here's the weird part. To whom Jesus is speaking here, I remind you, the ones who are criticizing Jesus because he receives sinners and eats with them. And he goes, You guys understand the sheep thing, don't you? They get, totally get that. You understand a girl losing a coin, you wouldn't want your fiancé losing her ring. How far would she sweep the house to find that ring? Yeah, I get that. Well, then you better understand the third story, because now it makes more sense. When Jesus is giving the parable of the prodigal son, it's to a group of people who just condemn Jesus for eating and receiving tax collectors and sinners. Now, if you know the story of the, of the parable of the uh, prodigal son. The prodigal son leaves, takes his dad's money. He's one of two sons. He leaves. He squanders it all with prostitutes and drugs. He's clubbing, and then he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, he runs out of friends. Finally, he comes to and he says, "What am I thinking? Even the guys who work for my dad have better than this. I'm going to go back there." So he goes back there, and his father meets him in round, hugs him, kisses him, wraps a rope around him, puts a ring about him. That's by the way, giving him his own debit card, and then saying. You know, kill the fatted calf. So my son was dead. He was now alive. He was lost and is now found. And then, when that happens, the older brother starts hearing this merriment, and then he gets really upset. 
He was really upset because everybody's celebrating. Because the son was lost and now is found. He was dead but now is alive. And we never read anywhere in the story, it's kind of like the book of Jonah, that he ever goes, oh, Dad, I get it. This is a sitcom. Let's all hug and be warm by the end of it. At the end of it, we still see an angry brother. So let me ask you, for Jesus' immediate audience, what character did they play in that story? The angry brother. The only bad guy in the story. The other son was a bad guy for a point, but he came home and he's no longer a bad guy. The only bad guy in the story left is the angry brother. And you can imagine them hearing that. That would sting. So, did you get, were you able to fill in those spots? Mm-hmm. Okay. In chapter 16, two more unique parables. The guy who was going to get fired, he actually drops people's prices. Do you know what it's called, by the way? When you take someone's debt and you make it less or remove it altogether, there's a legal term for it. Forgiving is what they call that. They forgave that debt. Have you ever used that term, Marcia? Okay. I know that from accounting. They say, well, you know, this person owed this debt and they forgave this debt. So. And then there was only one parable ever with a person's name in it, a, a, a proper name. All of them like, there's this guy, he built a tower, there's this guy, he had a farm, and he had, there was this guy and he went planting. But there's only one parable in all of Jesus' parables where a uh, specific personal name is used. Does anyone know the personal name? Excellent. There's a rich guy and then there was a Lazarus. And there's our underdog again. And by the way, do you know where Lazarus was before he died? Hanging out at the table, looking for scraps and crumbs. But they both died. And as they both died, of course, one said sumptuously. And one, on the other hand, was poor. But in sight of God, the rich man was as poor as a man could be. Speaking of underdogs, chapter 17, there were, there were ten lepers who come to Jesus. He heals them all, and only one of them comes back to thank him, and he turns out to be a Samaritan. Do you realize in Scripture, in the Gospels, a Samaritan is never given bad light? Neither, by the way, is a centurion. Alright. In chapter 18, Jesus spoke a parable to them about them, how they ought to pray and not lose heart. And he tells it about a persistent widow. Remember the one about knocking on the door until your friend would get up and give you bread? Well, now you got one about a judge. Well, this guy hit home. And that judge, by the way, what we read is he's a humanist. He doesn't care about people. He's been jaded because everybody's guilty by this point. And this girl wants justice. And this girl will not stop. She is just finding petitions, and she is calling him at his house, and she's leaving flyers and leaflets on his car. And finally later, the guy even says, you know, don't I don't even care about people. And I'm not even really that concerned about justice by this point. I'm going to go crazy if this girl doesn't leave me alone. I will give her what she needs. And he goes, this is for evil people, dealing with evil people who don't want to hear you. How much more your father who's willing to listen to you. But be persistent in your prayers. And again, he's reminding us, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying now. So, pray, and don't just pray, pray and don't lose heart in it. And then there's a prayer in regards to humility. Your two men went up to the, to the temple, and guess what they went up there to do? To pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And, and you start to realize, how many Pharisees are actually in Jesus' audience as he's telling the story? And it's amazing how many times the Pharisees are not the hero of the story, and it's the first time in 50 years Pharisees have not been the hero of the story. 
And then we have a story of this tiny little man who worked at a guitar shop in Camden. And as Jesus was walking down the high road, he heard that Jesus was coming by, and he couldn't see him over the buses. So he climbed a telephone pole in the area and was promptly electrocuted in a <laughs> And of course, the man said, I'd invite you over to my house, but there really, quite frankly, isn't room. So come over to my pastor's house and my wife will make you pasta. And as that's the case, which of course the pastor was very happy about, and uh, for which then, uh, of course, then the religious leaders again are chiding him because there he is. And what's, what's interesting though is Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. And I remind you, that's the guy who bid for that spot and didn't just hire. So he's, he's a hit. And so Jesus' response to them is the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. And again, notice the emphasis and all of this section of Jesus heading down. They were lost, and now they're found. They were dead, and now they're alive. Rejoice with me, rejoice with me, rejoice with me. And the end of this section ends with, the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. By the way, when they're lost, they're probably not going to find you. So you have to not just want them saved, you might want to seek them. Seek them out. Which takes us to our final section. Well, actually, yeah, and that's the triumphal entry to the resurrection and beyond. Jesus descends on the triumphal entry. Very important to note, unique to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is bawling his eyes out. He is crying. Well, you just don't see that on Palm Sunday often. Because he knows what's awaiting them at their lack of belief, at their lack of... as they're they're exercising their will and not choosing to follow Jesus. Chapters 21 and 22, Jesus is going to be challenged chapter 22 we read that Satan enters Judas and in the sky he was numbered with the twelve and then we have the most explicit encounter of the Passover story in regards to the specific event specifically the food portion by the way not all the other parts we'll be able to develop that next week but please hear me in this there's something really important we don't want to miss he said to them in verse 15 with fervent desire of desire to eat the Passover before um, before I suffer. I said you will no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is the last time for us. Until then. There is a feast, but it's on the other side. Then he took a cup, gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it for you among yourselves, for I say, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This is this cup is the last one we drink together. Now, the first cup, by the way, is a cup of promise. Because remember, then you're going to tell the story and eat your meal. And by the way, can I say this? This is the perfect time to say it. Let me kind of give you an, a rundown, just so you know, of the next couple of weeks. This week, obviously, is Luke. Next week is John. Then it's Acts. And then it is the week of Easter. During that week, Tay will be here, by the way, as well, in my order. I thought it would be really cool. How about if we have Passover here? Just us, on the Wednesday, in lieu of the study, separating the, the historicals from the epistles. Now, you don't have to do anything other than bring yourselves, and uh, I think that's it. If you want to, I'm, I'm trying to draft already, so you're going to come and help me for the course of the day. We're going to barbecue lamb that day. 
um, we're gonna make we're gonna make food. Um, yeah, we'll kill it before you get here, Dan. Um, right. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a stuffed animal now. <laughs> it's a flesh toy land. Right. But if you want, we could record the sound of it. Well, yes, yes. Uh, twelve. April twelve. Yes, exactly. The Wednesday before. So it'll be like one week in between. I mean, so we'll have these, because let's face it, these are the girthiest. There's no doubt. These are the girthiest books. I mean, you're going to be looking at books in some cases where there's like 15 verses. You know, that's the whole thing. But, uh, but, but this is a great way to start, isn't it? To get into the girth of it now so that it doesn't seem heavier later. Well, and it isn't like getting past it, let's face it. This stuff's amazing. I'm just trying to lead a tour through it so that you can spend more time in the museum staring at each picture. Right now, I'm just trying to let you know this is the wings that you're going so, I mean, the, the easiest way to kind of remember is, well, this is Luke, that will be John, that will be Acts, and then it'll be Passover. So, um, all right. If there is anyone you want to bring, let us know, because obviously it, it'll happen in this room, so we want to make sure that we have room for it. All right. Uh, for you, it's free. So then, tickets will be, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. um, now, back to what I was saying. Now, listen, before the meal is eaten, there's a couple of promises. A couple of promises important because what that tells us is the story I'm about to tell you is how God fulfilled his promise of delivering Israel out of, the, out of Egypt. Does that make sense? So there's, there's a bondage. And with that, God has in that promise a Moses who is already recruited. He's recruited before Passover, is he not? He's already busy doing the events prior to the Passover. And then... Uh, and then we're going to then we're going to tell the story that's called the seder, and then after that you have your meal, and then you have the last cup, the cup of covenant. The cup of covenant, I remind you, is you say your end of the bargain, and they drink to receive that end of the bargain. We do it in a sense where we drink receiving God's promise, if that makes sense. No, I remind you, it's the same cup, for instance, that would be used for a husband to offer to his wife. He offers his end of the bargain: protection, provision, and pleasure presence, she then drinks of it, receiving that. She offers her purity. He drinks of that in return, saying that's our deal, that's our bargain, so to speak. But when God started covenants, he did it all the way back in Genesis 15 where he split an animal in half, probably a lamb, just saying. It was a cow. And as you, as you split this cow in half, of course there was a big bloody field in between and you walked through it and you said, hey, this is my end of the bargain, and if I don't finish my end of the bargain, and I remind you, a covenant is not a contract. A covenant requires relationship. Contracts don't require relationship. They require a service or something, some fulfilled promise. But a covenant, we have to have some kind of relationship. And if I walk through this, I'm saying, may this happen to me if I don't fulfill my end of this. And then the other person will walk through, may this happen to me if this, you know. And that's the idea of marriage, for instance, where it says, where God is joined together, let no man tear asunder. Let no God half that. And that would be the image we would have on our heads. But when God confirms the promise that he had with, with Abraham, which, by the way, was one where God would allow them in, in Egypt, they would be slaves for 400 years, and then after the fourth generation, he would lead them out. God then has the animal half, and then he walks through and then consumes the animal, which means that Abraham cannot walk through and do his end of the bargain because it's already gone. Because God's covenant was relying only on God's faithfulness, not on man's faithfulness. Does that make sense? 
So God didn't even give Abraham a chance to sort of do his end. The reason I say that is, that's the same thing we see in Luke. Jesus had already given us this promise before dinner, right? I'm not going to drink of this cup anymore. This is it. This is the last one when we drink of this promise together. He's got another cup to drink of, of course. Cup of wrath. Now, he told us, after that, that he says, after dinner, Jesus took up another cup and he says, take this and drink. This is the cup of the new covenant. Now, wait a minute. One thing I do know about that cup is he's not going to drink of it. And there it is, just like Genesis 15 with God the Father, is that here's Jesus, if you will, offering that cup and saying, this is what I'm going to do for you. But the deal is totally reliant on my faithfulness, not on you. So let's face it, that night, every one of them are going to desert him. The deal would have been off that night. Well, anyways, that's the consider. Now, he withdraws about, he goes then to the garden, and what does Jesus do in the garden of Gethsemane? What's his purpose there? Other than to get arrested, what does he go to do? To pray. He withdrew about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. It is important to recognize that kneeling is passive. And what I mean by that is, it isn't like Jesus wanted to give us the new position to pray. Well, we kneel because that's what Jesus did in the garden. He knelt because he was weak, and he fell on his knees. There's the point. He's about to have a breakdown, as we know in the Gospel of Luke. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, you must be done. I tell you, in your own time, compare the statements that he makes in the garden, in the Gospels, because they are unique. An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus has what we would call hemohydrosis, or hemohydrosis, in essence, he has a breakdown. When he rose up, uh, by the way, uh, he being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. When an angel came to strengthen him, it was only for Jesus to continue praying. In agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so it became like great drops of blood falling to the ground, and he rose up from prayer and came to his disciples and found him sleeping. Because Jesus then is arrested, Peter was off by a servant's ear, and then Jesus is in the middle of his arrest. He says, permit even this, and then heals the man's ear. The specifics of who the man is will be given in John, and many people believe that John was directly related to the high priest. So, Jesus has a secular trial, and it's important to know that Herod's trial is unique to the Gospel of Luke. So, he, in essence, Jesus has three trials among the religious, and then he goes Pilate, Herod, Pilate, and the secular. And the day which, by the way, that Jesus went to Herod, it says on that day, Herod, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. They had previously been in enemy. They were actually enemies. So when, Herod, or when Pilate heard that Jesus from Galilee, he was like, I the guy I hate. And then they realized, oh, you know, we have this in common. We can't control these Jewish people. And then Jesus, of course, um, ultimately is declared innocent, but just the same, he goes to be crucified. And he says these things at the cross that are unique, by the way to the Gospel of Luke, including Father, forgive them. Unique to the Gospel of Luke. So they know not what they do. But after all, what did the Son of Man come to do? To seek and to what? To save. If he came to save, forgiveness. Remember what John the Baptist was going to do? He was going to declare salvation of the Lord through the forgiveness of sins. Well, here we have it. Then, of course, someone is crucified beside him, repenting. And Jesus saying today, you will be with me in paradise, unique to the Gospel of Luke. And then, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, unique to the Gospel of Luke, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathes his last. 
Now when the centurion saw it, he glorified God and said, as we would expect in this gospel, certainly this was a righteous man. Jesus shows himself to two men on the way to Emmaus, who don't recognize him, of course. They've given up hope, and they're just fleeing five miles out of Jerusalem, so they don't get arrested. Jesus gets invited in, and came to pass, as he sat at the table, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and guess what? We're around food at the table again. For which they like, did our hearts burn, and he opened the scriptures to us. Then Jesus appears to the eleven, as he does, he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I, myself, handle me, for you see that a ghost does not have, or a spirit, literally, does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. I'm sure the end of the feet. Jesus made clear they understood. If you asked any of them, was this a figurative or a literal resurrection, they would look at you and think you are an idiot. They would be like, it was clearly literal. He told us to touch him to make sure that we knew this was not like a phantom, which is probably whatever the Greek word for a, spirit, or for a ghost. The word here is spirit. Now, while they're there, still didn't believe for joy, but they marveled, and so Jesus has to convince them still. He's still, you know, they're going like this, and, he's, and they're still not believing that he's real. So what is Jesus going to do to prove that he's a man? Well, what has he done that so much off, so often in this book that shows us, like, one thing that men do? He eats. So he says, Yanni fish here. And I imagine this would have been one of the funniest moments for Jesus. I would have loved to have seen this moment. Could you imagine there's Jesus just having his fish and everyone else is like, oh, oh, oh. Mm-hmm. and he just, good fish. Good fish. I'm glad I made this one. <laughs> so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb and he took it and guess what he did? He ate in their presence. And this is the one gospel specifically that does not tell us to go. And the Gospel of John, by the way, John gives an epilogue in the whole thing, and there's no command in John, because there's a forgiveness factor, a restoration, reconciliation with Peter. But Matthew and Luke tell us to go. Matthew says, go and make disciples. Mark says, go and preach the Gospel. But this one says, go and wait. So he says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Because I remind you, the whole point of it since our reliance is on the Holy Spirit, he says, don't just run out there yet. Let me empower you first. You saw me walk around with the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need the same if you're going to be called to follow me. Does that make sense? Well, the word is tarry, but it means wait. When they say, well, if the Lord tarries, what that means is that the Lord waits. Now, do you realize? You've gone through the entire Gospel of Luke, and I imagine that this is by far...